Sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply their drink offerings of blood. I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. And indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord Always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad, and and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your holy and inerrant, inspired word. Thank you for the hope that we have through it, the instruction that it gives our hearts, and we pray this morning that we would be teachable, pliable, moldable, ready to listen, hear, receive, and apply. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Well, Psalm 16 is one of the most positive psalms in the entire book of Psalms. It begins with praise. You are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. And it continues in an attitude of worship and commitment. David shares how he will not run after false idols and instead will remain faithful, committed to the Lord. He says, the Lord is my chosen portion, he is my cup. And he goes on to describe how the lines have fallen for him and that he has a beautiful inheritance. And and just so that you know, that term lines in Scripture usually refers to the boundary lines of an individual or family's land that was handed down from one generation to the next. And, And typically, when a person thought of their inheritance, that was the first thing that came to mind is this heritage of their family and by extension their tribe. But David here is emphasizing how the Lord, did you catch that, is his chosen portion. And I like that. And it reminds me of how uh, there was one tribe that did not have any specific territory that was given to them. And in Joshua chapter 13, 32, we read this interesting statement where it says, these are the inheritances that Moses distributed in the plains of Moab, beyond the Jordan, east of Jericho, but to the tribe of Levi, Moses gave no inheritance. The Lord God of Israel is their inheritance, just as he said to them. And the Levites were able to say in a special way that the Lord was their chosen portion. He was their lot and their inheritance. And that's That's that type of intimate relationship that David is prizing even above the allotment of land here in Psalm 16. No matter how important that might have been, David recognizes that he has no good apart from the Lord. And then verses 7 through 9 continue David's praise. They describe how his heart is glad, how he feels secure, and his whole being rejoices. And then... We read this statement in verse 10. 
For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. I want to spend most of our time this morning on understanding this verse. That word, Sheol, I know you've probably seen it before in your Bibles, probably don't know what it means. Here in verse 10, it's a direct rendering of the Hebrew word, Sheol. And it's the realm of the dead. It's where all the dead went. Sometimes the terms pit or grave or Abaddon are used as synonyms in the Old Testament. You can see a a few of those in these passages here. Psalm 30, verse 8, To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Psalm 88, 3, My soul is full of troubles. My life draws near to shale. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave. And those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit. In the regions dark and deep, your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Ecclesiastes 9, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in shale to which you are going. Job 10, 18, why did you bring me out of from the womb? Would that I have died before any eye had seen me, and were as though I had not been carried from the womb directly to the grave. Are not my days few? Then cease and leave me alone that I may find a little cheer before I go. And I shall not return to the land of darkness and deep shadow, the land of gloom like thick darkness, like deep shadow without any order where light is as thick darkness. And last, Isaiah 14, 9, shale beneath is stirred up to meet you when you come. It rouses the shades to greet you. All who were leaders of the earth, it raises from the thrones. All who were kings of the nations, and all of them will answer and say to you, you too have become as weak as we. You've become like us, and your pomp is brought down to shale, the sound of your harps, Maggots are laid as a bed beneath you, and worms are your covers. <laughs> That's very vivid. So what do we see in these passages? We see that Sheol was seen as the realm of the dead, where they are described in Isaiah as shades or disembodied souls. Those in, in Sheol, David says in Psalm 88, are cut off from God's hand. Ecclesiastes said there is no longer any work in shale, but also there's no thought or knowledge or wisdom. Job talks about it as a place of thick darkness and gloom in Isaiah. The point is that even the most powerful leaders end up there, and unlike their earthly life in shale, they are weak and without honor. Would you agree it doesn't sound like a very pleasant place? It does not. And because those in Sheol were cut off from the Lord and without honor and weak and without thought or knowledge or wisdom, it's natural that we read these comments here in Isaiah and in, in Psalm in Isaiah 38, 18, for Sheol doesn't thank you. 
Death does not praise you. Those who go down to the pit do not hope for your faithfulness. Psalm 6, 5, in, in death there is no remembrance of you in shale. Who will give you praise? So while shale was more than just the grave, yet the way into shale was through the grave, it was through death, and that's why in Proverbs 3.15 it says, three things are never satisfied, four never say enough. And the first one listed is shale. It's insatiable. You can't ever fill its appetite. There are always people that were going to be dying great and small, rich and poor, and you didn't want to be there. Neither did David, nor for that matter did any Israelite. And we've already seen multiple reasons for it, a place of gloom and darkness, but another one to not be in shale was that you were not expected to leave. You saw in Job how he said, I will not return. And he also says in Job 7, 9, as the cloud fades and vanishes, so he who goes down to Sheol does not come up. Job 16, 22, for when a few years have come, I shall go the way from which I shall not return. There's no example or illustration or parable in the Old Testament of a person who went into Sheol and came out again never to return back. There are examples of revived individuals, right? There's uh, the example of Elisha and uh, raising the Shunammite son in 2 Kings chapter 4, where we read that when Elisha came into the house, he saw the child lying dead on his bed, and he went in and shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. It's a great story, right, of how he laid upon the child, put his mouth upon his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, hands on his hands. And then he got up again and walked once back and forth in the house, did that a second time. The, the child sneezes, opens his eyes, and then Elisha summons Gehazi and says, call the Shunammite. And when she came to him, he said, pick up your son. And she came and fell at his feet, bowing at the ground and, and picked up her son and went out. But here's the point. While the son was, went on to live longer, he didn't cheat Shale. We're to expect that at some time later, the son grew older and eventually died, and there was insatiable Shale waiting to swallow him up. And going to Shale in the Old Testament is this, this picture of this ultimate exile from God. It was already bad enough to think of exile from God's promised land. But Shale, wow, that was where you truly were separated from God. And so what we find in the Psalms also are, are these statements of, of the psalmist at times so distraught, so despairing that Part of their melancholy, part of their depression is caught up with the fact that they're so near to shale. Psalm 18.4, the cords of death encompass me, the torrents of destruction assailed me, the cords of shale entangled me. It's this picture of kind of dragging him down 
pulling him in. The snares of death confronted me. And in my distress, you can see it, right? And you've seen it in movies where the, you know, whatever it is that's being portrayed, tentacles or something or whatever, it's pulling the person in help, right? That's what, what you hear from the psalmist. From his temple he heard my cry, and it reached his ear. Psalm 88, 1, O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear, because my life is drawing near to Sheol. So was there any hope? You know, we read all these passages, and you go, that is, it doesn't seem very hopeful. And yet there was hope. And this is where Israel was unique among the nations. You see, in David's time, if you were to look at the nearby nations, such as Mesopotamia or Canaan or Greece further out, there were similar concepts of of a gloomy, disembodied realm of the dead. The Greek poet Homer, who wrote the Odyssey and the Iliad, described Hades, which was the Greek version of, of Sheol, as a place where once a man has died and the dust has soaked up his blood, there is no resurrection. And in the Odyssey, Odysseus visits Hades and describes the dead as flitting about like shadows. And Odysseus is asked by one woman, why have you left the light of the sun and come here to behold the dead in a place where there is no joy? The sinews no longer hold the flesh and bones together and the strong force of blazing fire destroy, destroys those as soon as the spirit leaves the white bones and the ghost, like a dream, flutters off and is gone. And to be fair, some of these nations, and I'll add in here Egypt to kind of complete the circle around Israel, had concepts of a paradise of sorts. Greece had its Elysium or Isles of the Blessed Egypt had its field of reeds. But interestingly, those paradises, they were simply mirror images of earthly life in in kind of a, a ghostly realm. So the highest goal for a Greek, the highest goal for an Egyptian was to be able to live out this disembodied life, reenacting earthly life, like I say, in some ghostly fashion. And what made Israel unique was that the highest goal of the Israelite was not to simply repeat earthly existence, but to be in the presence of God. Furthermore, it was not the individual's personal works or righteousness that freed him or her from shale, but the sovereign power and mercy of God. Compare that, for example, to Egypt, where The only way a soul was allowed to go to the field of reeds was if his heart, when put on the golden scales of truth, somehow weighed less than a feather because it was free of evil. Well, this is what we find in the Psalms. Psalm 9, 13 says, Be gracious to me, O Lord. Lift me up from the gates of death that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. Do you see such a huge difference? It's not 
The Egyptian wondering, okay, if I make my way in this adventure post-death and get to stand before Anubis, am I, am my work's going to be outweighing, you know, of good outweighing the evil, and, and then I'm going to pass through, and then I'm going to relive earth. No, you have the psalmist saying, Lord, you are the one who has power over the grave. You are the one who has power over shale. Lift me up from the gates of death. Why? Not so I may live my boat out amongst the field of reeds, but so I may recount all of your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. Psalm 30, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried out to you for help. Remember the cries before for help? Well, the Israelites, their hope was that God would hear, that he would listen. And you have healed me, O Lord. You've brought up my soul from shale. You've restored me to life among those who go down to the pit. Or Psalm 49, like sheep, they are appointed for shale. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in shale. Not denying that reality with no place to dwell, but God will ransom my soul from the power of shale, for he will receive me. Psalm 86, I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever, for great is your steadfast love Toward me, you have delivered my soul from the depths of shale. So you can see over and over again, the psalmist's great desire, unlike those in shale who do not praise God, do not remember his faithfulness, do not think upon him, he wishes instead that he may recount, continue to praise God for all eternity, and his desires are to glorify him who, out of steadfast love, ransom his soul and received him into his presence. And so clearly that is a remarkable, distinctive difference from every other nation, every other belief system. I mean, you could, for example, look at Cain and some gods or goddesses who had the ability, the power to visit the realm of the dead, but you know, in, in those mythologies, they had to themselves go through mighty adventures to get into the realm of the dead, many of them barely made it. And they couldn't wait to get back out again. Sometimes they were worse for wear. But that is not the God of Israel who actually not only created Sheol, but who is mighty enough to ransom his people from there with his presence, with his love. And what does being rescued from Sheol look like? It brings us back to our morning's passage in Psalm 16 where we read, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. Now, by itself, that last part of the verse is a little ambiguous. If we were just reading it in David's time, hearing that, it's possible that we would see the phrase, not let your Holy One see corruption, as simply being another way of saying that you won't let your Holy One stay in Sheol. And we'll talk about that more in just a moment, but here's another helpful passage in Psalm 73, 23. I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. 
Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh, my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. For you have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry, but it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord that I may declare all your works. There is something about the psalmist, what he's describing here in 73, is that he's being rescued from Shale. And yes, we already saw the desire of the psalmist to continue to praise and glorify God. But there's this sense of he will be received into glory. There's Not only is he going to be praising God and glorifying God, but he himself received into glory, whatever that would mean. And that same idea of being received and honored is found in Psalm 49, 15, where it says, but God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave. He shall receive me. And and again, this is not just a receiving by God so that the person can do earth part two, but there's something more. And we have to go outside the Psalms to understand what that looks like. But Job 19 adds this, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know. Catch that part. After my skin is destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. Daniel 2 12, verse 2, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth, a phrase that was usually meant to say bodies in graves, shall awake, a metaphor for coming back to life, some to everlasting life, some to shame, everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And at the end of that vision, he's told in verse 13, but you go your way till the end, for you shall rest. Again, a, a, a metaphor for, for being put in the grave, but will arise to your inheritance at the end of the days. And so what we're having added to this concept of being received by God, being able to glorify him, but also in some way receiving glory, being honored is this idea of seeing God in the flesh, of rising up bodily from the grave. And behind Daniel 12 stands Isaiah 24, O Lord our God, masters besides you have had dominion over us, but by you only we make mention of your name. They are dead, they will not live, they are deceased, they will not rise, therefore you have punished, destroyed them, made all their memory to perish. Your dead shall live Together with my dead body, they shall arise. Awake and sing, you who dwell in dust, for your dew is like the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. See that? Earth shall cast out the dead, and my dead body, together with your dead, their dead bodies, they shall arise. And what we see from this brief look at the Old Testament is that God's people, including David, as he wrote Psalm 16, believed that at death people went to Sheol, that for a time they had some type of non 
bodily existence for those whom God loved. There was a hope that he would do something new, that his love and creative power were so strong that even death could not thwart his desire to ransom his people, to receive them. And this new thing would also include not only receiving his people into glory, into his presence, which he describes as being an inheritance, or as Psalm 16 says, results in fullness of joy and did you see pleasures forevermore. But this new thing would even include bodily resurrection, such that God's people in their flesh would see their Redeemer. Why resurrection? Why in the flesh? Because unlike the pagan nations who simply wanted to reenact earthly experience, resurrection is a reversal of death. Please get that difference. It's not existence after death. It is a reversal of death. It's not about making shale better or more tolerable by having some section of it contain better opportunities from some, for some souls like the Isles of the Blessed in Greek belief or the Field of Reeds in Egyptian belief. It is recreation. And as God can bring life to death, so he can bring death to life. The sleepers will no longer sleep. The dead will no longer be dead. They will be alive. Never to die again. And what I just said is what makes the faith of Israel, among a few, some other things, and then of Christianity, truly, truly unique amongst all the belief systems of the world but there's one more thing to understand about Psalm 16 and David's comments about shale and God's deliverance. And for that, I go to the New Testament. The first passage is Acts 2, 29. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David. That he is both dead and buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, who would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne, he, David foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. The word Hades being used here, because Luke is writing in Greek, so he's using the Greek uh, parallel concept to Sheol. Paul later in Acts says, for David after he had served his own generation by the will of God fell asleep, was buried with his fathers and saw corruption, but he whom God raised up saw no corruption. And, and I said earlier when we looked at Psalm 16, you know, it was a little ambiguous as to how to read the end of verse 10 to fully understand what that meant, that your Holy One would not see corruption. But Paul affirms Peter's interpretation and says, David couldn't have been talking about himself. Because his personal body decayed in the ground and saw corruption. So what the New Testament authors under the inspiration of the Spirit are saying is that the ambiguity is removed from the fact that what David was really saying is they, the, your Holy One will not see corruption is that your body will not be decaying in the grave. And they're saying David's tomb is still here. 
His body's still here, but Jesus's is not. He's not. And so David was speaking both of his own hope with regard to Sheol, but also, you know, a prophetic foresight was looking at his future descendant, Jesus, God's holy one. We sometimes quote the Apostles' Creed, which has the line that Jesus descended into hell. But in the spirit of what we've learned today, probably more would be meant descended into Sheol. And what that would mean would that Jesus experienced death as all humans do. His body was buried. His soul experiencing whatever it was that these Old Testament writers are describing in terms of Sheol, but in this resurrection, he defeated death and the grave. And I want you to think of it as kicking down Sheol's gates from the inside out. And because of his atoning death and descent into Sheol and his glorious resurrection, it no longer needs to be feared like the psalmist does, or like Job, or Isaiah, or others did. Yes, there was always hope and confidence of those like David that God could restore and rescue and ransom from Sheol, but in Christ we learn how. Using the language of the New Testament, the strong man's house referring to death and to the devil is plundered because of Christ's work. Yes, there was a forward-looking hope, but now we look back at what Christ did and we go, that's what happened. Everything that they were hoping for, that they would be ransomed and rescued by the power of the sovereign God, that Christ, because of his work, has pulled them all out. He's plundered the strong man's house. Shale is no longer an exile from God for the believer, but rather because Jesus walked through the valley of the shadow of death and emerged victorious on the other side, he now leads all those who are united by, to him by faith through that same valley, and the gates of Shale shall not prevail, not only against Christ's church, but against his people, because Jesus has already broken down its doors." We are no longer prisoners of death. And all those who die in Christ die knowing that death has already been defeated. Shale's already been decimated. We don't need to have that agonizing thought of the psalmist that the cords of Shale are dragging me down to death, but we have the hope, like Paul, of saying that the moment I die I shall be in the presence of God. The gates are wide open. And whatever is and was gloomy about the grave and existence immediately after death, instead, as Paul expresses in his letter, we are. It's better, he says, that I should remain here because I'm here for your benefit, but oh, I would delight to be apart from the body and present with the Lord. And so taking a final step back from Psalm 16 and asking, how does this all apply to us besides that 
picture of, of life after death and our hope in salvation. We do have some other things that are important here in Psalm 16, and I just want to ask you a few questions based on them. First, David says, you are my Lord and I have no good apart from you and and you are my chosen portion. And my question, first one is, is David's attitude yours? Do you believe that outside of God there is no good for you? As we read in James chapter 1, verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren, Every good and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow or turning. Every good and perfect gift is from God. Remember that the essence of Satan's temptation to Eve in the garden was both that there is a possibility of something good apart from God. You know, wisdom, secret knowledge, be like God. And also that God withholds and wants to withhold things from us that are for our good. Don't believe that. What makes you happy? What do you find good? If you dig beneath the sins of your life, you will find that you are seeking after or trying to obtain something good apart from God. Pleasure, security, significance, justice, some particular need. In the end, it's all idolatry. Second question, David says, As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is my delight. Is that true of you? Do you love God's people and delight in them? We read this in 1 John Chapter 5, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. That's important. Do you see the people around you as your family? Do you treat them that way? Third question, David says, I have set the Lord always before me. Are you doing that? Is God's character and His ways the foundation of everything that you do and decide and desire? And last question, David says, you make known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Is that your hope? Have you trusted in the one who broke down the gates of Sheol, the only one who can deliver your soul from the grave, the one that can recreate, renew, can bring life from death? Is that what you want? Do you believe that there is fullness of joy in being forever in God's presence? I mean, would you be like the psalmist saying, please rescue my soul from Sheol, not because it sounds so unpleasant, but so that I can recount praise to you forever. To be blessed by being received and with God himself. Do you find it hard to identify with Psalm 73, 25? Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Some people say, I'd rather have a good time in hell than be bored in heaven. I know a lot of you are saying that's that's sacrilegious. I would never say that out loud. What have we learned about Sheol this morning? There's nothing pleasant about it. 
And by the time we get to the New Testament where life after death without Christ takes on a new dimension and is called hell, we learn that hell is a place of torment and isolation from the blessing of God. Do you think that you'll be bored in heaven? I like what Mark Buchanan writes in Things Unseen. He says, why won't we be bored in heaven? Because it's the only place where both impulses, the impulse to go beyond and the impulse to go home are perfectly joined and totally satisfied. It's the one place where we're constantly discovering, where everything is always fresh and the possessing of a thing is as good as the pursuing of it, and yet where we are fully at home, where everything is as it ought to be, and where we find undiminished that mysterious something we never found down here. And this lifelong melancholy that hangs on us, this wishing we were someone else, somewhere else vanishes too. And our craving to go beyond is always and fully realized. Our yearning for home is once for all fulfilled. And the awe of deep satisfaction and the aha of delighted surprise meet and they kiss. I would have wanted Buchanan to add one more thing. Namely, that the desire to go beyond and discover is ultimately satisfied by God, who is infinitely creative, good, beautiful, and powerful. And that the desire to be home is satisfied by being together with our gracious, kind, and loving Father, as well as our brothers and sisters in the faith. One more author, Randy Alcorn, says in his book, Heaven, We think of ourselves as fun-loving and of God as a humorless killjoy, but we've got it backwards. It's not God who's boring, it's us. Did we invent wit and humor and laughter? No, God did. We'll never begin to exhaust God's sense of humor and his love for adventure. The real question is, how could God not be bored with us? Well, whatever you imagine about heaven, it's not enough. And the Bible tells us that. David writes of pleasures forevermore and fullness of joy. Other biblical writers use every possible illustration of things that are pleasant to us to try to analogize what it will be like to be received, receive an inheritance of the presence of God and the fullness of joy forever. Incredible feasts, family reunions, and more, all intended to say, whatever you think was your best moment, Fill in the blank. Whatever you think was your best moment, it gets better. And Jesus himself says, I go to prepare a place for you. And he has been preparing a place for you for a few millennia, friends. Trust me, it's going to be wonderful. And you will one day, in your flesh, see your Redeemer. May that be the most motivating, encouraging, exciting thought that drives you to keep serving the Lord. Let me pray. Father, we are so easily satisfied by superficial things. 